This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. We bring you one of the best of the week and one of the best of all time. We go and best is, you know, relative. Sometimes these things are not to be celebrated, but just to be noted. In fact, the spiel that I will be replaying today, and that will be in the second half of this, the Saturday show, just uh, as a means of protection and prophylaxis. That was a very long spiel I did Tuesday. My producer said, play it again. I said, wasn't it too long? I hate to bludgeon you. So if you want to stay for that, stay for that. If you just want to listen to an interview we did in 2014, this I recommend. It's with Mitchell Reese, author of Negotiating with Evil. And I think what the precipitating event in 2014 was the release and uh, negotiation over Bo Bergdahl. Remember him? Serial season two, American soldier who walked off a base in Afghanistan. But many of the insights and lessons that Reese gave us in 2014 apply to to what the Israelis and Hamas might be doing when they're negotiating with evil. So that interview up first, and then the long set of predictions with asterisks. I'm not extremely confident of those predictions to follow. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas was on ABC's This Week. George Stephanopoulos had just interviewed United States National Security Advisor Susan Rice, and Senator Cruz characterized the interview this way. You know, Ambassador Rice basically said to you, yes, U.S. policy has changed. Now we make deals with, with terrorists. Cruz went on to add, The reason why the U.S. has had the policy for decades of not negotiating with terrorists that assertion is simply ahistoric. The U.S. might not want to, or they might not want to admit that they do negotiate with terrorists, but the U.S. does, and pretty much the U.S. always has. Mitchell Reese, who worked in the State Department under President George W. Bush and served as National Security Advisor to Mitt Romney when he was running for president, has written a book called Negotiating with Evil. He joins me now. Hello, Mitchell Reese. Hello there. So did this negotiation and the decision-making, from what you understand of the decision-making, comport with, maybe we should call it, the best practices of negotiating with evil? Uh, no, I don't think it really did. Um, the administration, I think, telegraphed early on that it was far more eager to uh, get our prisoner release than the Taliban were to, to get their five. In fact, the, the, number, uh, the, the difference in numbers, I think, suggests that as well. 
So when you, when you suggest that you're more eager for a deal than your opponent, that that's kind of breaks the first rule of negotiating. Also, there were, uh, it takes place in a larger context of our drawing down uh, from Afghanistan. Uh, arguably, that also weakens some of our negotiating leverage. The fascinating thing to me about your answer is that your criticism is not the with evil part, it's the negotiating part. You acknowledge, I mean, this is what your whole book is about, that negotiating with evil has had to go on. That doesn't mean that every negotiation with evil is a good negotiation. That's right. Um, again, from the beginning of our country, our founding fathers negotiated with pirates uh, in North Africa. That's what led Thomas Jefferson to help found the Marines so we would no longer be paying tribute uh, so that they would not attack our merchant vessels and imprison and enslave our uh, our citizens. So the question really is not, uh, do you do it? The question is, uh, do you do it well? Yeah. You know, there are some uh, very serious questions about this, not just on the front end, but also on the back end. What will happen to these five very hardened uh, Taliban operatives after they spend the year in gutter? And uh, I think that's a question that many people would like to know. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. Um, do you think that they could still be extremely dangerous given that they've been away from battle for so many years? Oh, I don't think that there's any doubt. Um, I don't think that your skills, at least the skills that they have, uh, erode. Um, we're not talking about young men going into battle. Uh, uh, we're talking about people who organize, people who motivate, people who recruit. Uh, and we do know that some of the people that have been released from Guantanamo in the past have returned to the battlefield and have uh, rejoined the fight. So that's a concern here as well. Can you assess the landmines around the rhetoric and around this phrase, negotiating with terrorists? It was, this is the way a number of newscasts frame it. Did we negotiate with terrorists? Can you talk about the use of this phrase being so loaded and what that does for, say, American policy and thinking about the best ways to negotiate with evil? Sure. The, the title of the book, which you mentioned, uh, really comes from a comment that uh, Vice President Cheney made in a speech in Philadelphia in 2002. It was, we don't negotiate with evil, we defeat it. And presidents from both parties uh, have from time to time cut deals that they didn't like. Uh, it's morally repugnant. There's something that's just viscerally um, difficult to, to sit down with men who have so much blood on their hands. And it's not just in the United States. Uh, Prime Minister Thatcher uh, had to make similar calculations when negotiating with the IRA. So this is part of the, the grave difficulty for uh, democratically elected leaders, having to uh, rightfully demonize these individuals that have done terrible things, but perhaps from time to time cutting deals with them uh, for a greater good. You know, it can be left to, uh, to people's subjective judgment whether uh, the deal is uh, serving a greater good or not. Uh, obviously, President Obama thought that it was, or else he wouldn't have gone through with it. You know, Ronald Reagan, I, I know you know because it's quoted in your intro to your book, he referred to our enemies as, in this case, in, or in the case where he negotiated with them, misfits, looney tunes, and squalid criminals, and yet then the Iran-Contra deal comes to light. So is there a better way to talk about one's enemies beforehand, given the realities of what you might have to do down the line? Well, I think, again, you're, you're highlighting one of the difficulties because uh, the president was talking about that in a certain context. Uh, at the same time, there were individuals within the government that were, were talking to these folks. And frankly, uh, we have a lot of people in the U.S. government, um, and I'm very grateful that some of them are talking to some really terrible people out there. Sometimes you can cut deals. 
uh, whether you do or not, you learn more about the individual, about the organization. Sometimes you can turn them. Sometimes you can recruit them. Uh, sometimes you can do a variety of things that you wouldn't be able to do unless you engage. The difference, really, in the distinction is, do you invite them to the Oval Office? Do you invite them to a Rose Garden ceremony? Uh, but we've known for years that the United States wanted to get Bo Bergdahl back. We've known for years that we have been talking to the Taliban, both in Qatar, in Saudi Arabia, in other places around the world. Uh, and this goes back to the Clinton administration. So uh, when we were trying to negotiate uh, the return of Osama bin Laden, if they would hand him over to us. You were once such a person. You were at those, uh, or maybe a few times such a person, right? You negotiated with members of the IRA in Northern Ireland. Am I getting that right? Yes, that's right. So at that time, did you ever feel hamstrung or even in any way affected by the rhetoric of vocal American political leaders beforehand or hamstrung by the what we've established is a historic notion that we don't do this, we don't negotiate with terrorists? Well, I was certainly very sensitive to it, and um, I made sure that I uh, kept Secretary Powell and then Secretary Rice uh, informed uh, all the time as to what I was doing and what I was was hoping to do. But sure, there were people um, on all sides, not just here, but also in the U.K., who were uh, upset at some of the things that uh, I said and did. One of the risks that you take as a negotiator is that there's no guarantee you're actually going to get to the promised land. In Northern Ireland, fortunately, we did, and uh, so far the peace has held. State Department veteran Mitchell Reese is the author of Negotiating with Evil. Thank you so very much. Thank you. And now the spiel. I want to talk about where I see the war in Gaza going, but also a little bit where it actually stands. I don't usually make predictions. I mean, what special insight do I have? But in this case, I don't think the insight's special. I just think it's a little more clear than so very much of what we're hearing about the war because so much of that is filtered through a lens of prior beliefs or trying to appeal to a specific audience. And I struggle to trust the vast majority of analysis on this issue. And you know where I'm coming from. You know generally where I'm coming from. I think you also know it's not the case that I say things to appeal to an audience. I think a lot of my Israel content has been extremely unappealing to large parts of my audience. And by the way, I do care about that and I do hear you, but I ask for you to hear me out. Maybe some of these insights or predictions will resonate with you. So first of all, let's start by acknowledging where I was wrong. Here are some areas I was wrong. I thought Israel would go in sooner and heavier and probably a little stupider. I thought fighting in tunnels would be an absolute bloodbath for Hamas and for the Israelis. Israel has paid Uh, some cost. Hamas has paid much, much more of a cost. But of course, the saddest part is the Gazan civilians have paid the highest cost of all. I thought that Israel's public-facing explanations to the world would be a little better. I mean, five days after the attack of October 7th, the Minister of Information resigned and essentially dissolved her post. No, you won't be needing any public diplomacy, except they will. The events of the last couple months show us they will, they do, they're not very good at explaining things to the Western world. They have people within Israel and affiliated with Israel, maybe don't live there now, who'd be quite effective at communicating to an American audience, but they seem unwilling or unable to recognize this fact. So that is surprising. 
We had well-spoken people with American accents who could go on American TV that can make arguments that could connect to American audience, but they choose not to. That's surprising. So that's on me. But what's on them? Well, there are a couple of notions we heard constantly pre-invasion, post-attack. We heard them on the eve of the war with Al-Qaeda as well. One is that, this is a big one, you can't defeat an idea. And Hamas represents the idea, the idea of the resistance to Israel. All right, so number one, there are a lot of ways to resist or oppose Israel that aren't Hamas. And two, it is not actually true that you can't defeat an idea. Let's take them one by one. Number one, even if you don't weigh into the question of defeating an idea, it is certainly true that you could defeat Hamas, the specific terrorists who pulled the October 7th attack. And destroying these specific terrorists, even if there are others out there who would do violence if the means and methods presented themselves, destroying these specific guys would make Israel safer. But again, you can defeat an idea. The thing is, when you defeat an idea, there's no body. You don't put a toe tag on the idea. I mean, maybe you could say something like, you bury it in the unmarked grave of memory. Because a defeated idea just isn't remarked upon that much. It's not debated for sport. It just becomes a thing that people used to talk about. When someone doesn't think about an idea anymore, you generally don't think about not thinking about it. The U.S. spent a decade fighting Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And where is Al-Qaeda now? I mean, there's a group called Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb and Al-Shabaab operates out of Somalia. Can be said to have some ties to Al-Qaeda, but Al-Qaeda is no more. The ideas, the ideas of the Al-Qaeda leaders who we killed, Ayman al-Zwahiri, Osama bin Laden, they're gone. Do you even know that we killed Ayman al-Zwahiri last year? Yeah, remember that? That's how prevalent and prominent his ideas were. I know there are a lot of people, dozens of people within the CIA or the NSC who are tracking these groups, groups said to be affiliated with Al-Qaeda. These groups are nothing special. I'm glad they're monitoring them. By all means, do so. They're a defeated organization and they are a defeated idea. I guess every idea exists first as drama, then as farce, and eventually as a kitschy reboot among the TikTok teens. But Al-Qaeda's call for global jihad now goes unheard. Its version of the caliphate ignored. The ideas are dead because the people behind them are dead. It's not as if dissatisfaction with the United States or the U.S. military is dead, but we don't even think about it in the form of a global jihadist terrorist network. ISIS, by the way, it's all but gone too. Well, it's in retreat. It does operate. ISIS operates out of a tiny area in Iraq and Syria. But no, it's not a landmass the size of Belgium, as we could have said about five and a half years ago. ISIS has no legitimate means to attract adherence to their ideology. In fact, they don't have much of an ideology because they don't have much of a fighting force. We killed another idea. Can resistance to Israel be killed? No, but the Hamas version of it can, which would be a good thing. Right after the October 7th attack, pundits like Tom Friedman wrote columns saying, isn't going into Gaza just what Hamas wants? Or take this headline in the Atlantic. Israel is walking into a trap. Storming into Gaza will fulfill Phil Hamas's wish. That was Hussein Ibish. Friedman, October 19th. Israel is about to make a terrible mistake. October 10th. I hope the president, meaning Biden, is asking Israel to ask itself this question as it considers what to do next in Gaza. What do my worst enemies want me to do and how can I do just the opposite? 
That didn't seem really compelling at the time. That didn't seem to me that well thought through. It just seemed to be an instinct, a heuristic. Do the opposite of what the bad guys want or what we have told ourselves we want or what Tom Friedman tells us we want. But I get it. We were reeling a month or really almost six weeks after all that. And it seems like Israel's military success is isolating Hamas. And it's also keeping Iran and Hezbollah at arm's length. Let those idiots immolate themselves, say Iran and Hezbollah, the two most powerful anti-Israeli forces on the planet. We tend to think that when a surprising, horrific maneuver is successfully pulled off, that the people who got it right know so much. They're so much smarter than we are in every single way. We said this after 9-11, Al-Qaeda lurked in every shadow. If they could pull that off, who knows what else they could pull off? The answer was, yeah, they could evade capture for about a decade and then die in a military raid. Hamas... Al-Qaeda, they exploited flaws, but there was a large portion of Goliath being asleep on the job, right? So we tend to credit the force that scored the unusual success. Think of them, build them up as an otherworldly power. We get scared. Don't provoke them. This is just what they want. Well, actually, well, actually, not only is being destroyed by the IDF not what Hamas wanted, maybe their own self-interest is flawed. Right, half of column writing or being a public pundit is talking about how the countries where columnists thrive are always undertaking actions that aren't in their self-interest. What about the places that would kill a columnist for stepping out of line? They can't make mistakes. They can't ever act in ways that are actually contrary to their own long-term self-interests. It seems Hamas made such a mistake. Using the phrase, a suicide attack on itself, to describe Hamas, the New York Times reporter Ben Hubbard gave this assessment to the podcast, The Daily. In my talks with the Hamas leaders, there was really no sense of a grand plan for what comes next. They definitely wanted to hit Israel as hard as they could, and they wanted to hit Israel inside of Israel. And they were not particularly concerned about what sort of you know response this would bring and what it would mean to the people of Gaza. It was that the attack somehow would be enough and would open up some new way. But there is no new way. There's a growing consensus that Hamas totally misstepped. So here's what I think. I think Hamas will lose. And I know the sophisticated thing to say, ah, but at what price victory? And if Hamas loses, can we truly say that Israel has won? Okay, fine. I enjoy the sophistication of such phrases. But we will be able to say that thousands of Hamas fighters are dead and thousands more are arrested, and perhaps their leaders will also be punished. That I have no idea about. They seem pretty safely ensconced in luxury quarters. But I think that their capacity as a military force will be destroyed. Can you even defeat an idea? Well, you can kill Hamas, and Israel is killing Hamas. What if I'm wrong? How would it play out that Hamas wins? Okay. Well, Hamas' strategy seems to be a theory that I do not think has ever worked in the history of warfare. Hamas wants to defeat Israel by turning the opinions of citizens living outside the conflict against one of the participants of the conflict, one of the deeply engaged participants. In the history of warfare, opinion certainly plays a role. It turns tides, especially in democracies. Democracies are sensitive to opinion. They sour on war. They sour on their own war. When American troops were dying for nothing in Vietnam, that turned the tide. Yes, we say it was mass protests and citizens taking to the streets. But no, look at public opinion. Look at how tightly it tracked the death toll in Vietnam. 
it was because American boys were dying, the death toll went up, the popularity of the war went down, LBJ didn't stand for re-election, it ended the Vietnam War. The Korean War went in a similar way. The Afghanistan War in Russia, not a democracy, but they didn't want to send more of their boys to slaughter anymore. Take France and Algeria. Public opinion turned against that country internally. They turned against the country pursuing the war. But it was within that country. In Gaza, we're talking about a theory of outside opinion affecting the prosecution of a war. If outsiders raise money and send arms or fighters, yeah, that could have an effect. You know, in 1821, the Greek Civil War was quite the cause celeb in Paris. The Spanish Civil War was also a cause celeb. But the toll of the Spanish Civil War wasn't just the sound of the bells. It was the lives of American fighters who went there. So unless people marry their opinions to guns and arms and the ability to join the fight, I don't think it much matters, or at least it hasn't in the past. I think of Biafra. Liberal Westerners held concerts, tried to raise money. The Nigerian government crushed the rebellion. And even then, the strategy of the fighters was to actually fight back, actually inflict casualties on the other side. But in Gaza, the tactic of Hamas is to get Israel to inflict casualties on Hamas's own side, even though Hamas doesn't care much for the average Gazan. I mean, how could outrage in the salons of Europe at the campuses of the U.S. actually win the war for Hamas? Well, you could say, well, The U.S. gives Israel a lot of money. But it's not as if the U.S. can turn off the spigot and convince one of the world's most powerful militaries to simply abandon its mission. It's a mission strongly supported by the vast majority of the Israeli citizens, and they are a democracy. There have been a number of times when the United States told an ally, stand down, we're not in favor of your war, and the ally ignored them. Saudi Arabia versus Yemen. Saudi Arabia did not listen. They didn't win that war either, by the way. This is not against the backdrop of the American public having turned away from the Israelis. By a three-to-one margin, America still supports Israel over Palestine. Not the youth. The youth defect. Democrats differ. But public support in the U.S. isn't close to pro-Palestinian. A poll conducted last week gave Americans the choice. Should the U.S. stay out? Should it mediate? Should it favor the Israelis? Should it favor the Palestinians? Over a third said the U.S. should mediate, be a neutral mediator. Just under a third said the U.S. should support Israel and supporting the Palestinians, 4%. 4% said that. So Israel is winning tactically, militarily, and is at least not losing the relevant, though not determinative, poll of public opinion. So you're telling me that this will be the first conflict in history that ends because outsiders, a minority of outsiders to the conflict, objected from afar. I'll tell you what this plays out like. It plays out like it's not a war. It reminds me of nothing so much as the George Floyd protests. They got massive attention. They were transnational. People in the UK tore down their statues. A similar coalition was behind them, as are behind most of the Palestinian causes. But what the George Floyd protests told us was that a very loud, vocal, impassioned minority, which maybe eventually could become a majority, can get people out to the streets, clamoring for change. Now, of course, June of 2020, during the protest, 67% of Americans supported Black Lives Matter. 
20 something percent support Palestine, broadly speaking. So this is a lot like George Floyd. And let's remember all the changes that the George Floyd protests wrought. Almost nothing. Well, let's be fair. I had DeRay McKesson on the show. There were some laws passed in some states like Maryland and New Mexico. They wrote the rules about qualified immunity. So three or four states passed some incremental changes. I do not see the case for the groundswell of sentiment in the West actually literally lowering one rifle that would otherwise be aimed, letting stand one building that would otherwise be flattened, allowing for the survival of one Hamas fighter who would otherwise be killed. I would say that Israel would decimate Hamas, but decimate means reduce by a tenth. Israel will probably do the inverse of that. They will destroy the vast majority of Hamas fighters. And I think the world's opinion might not like that. I don't think it'll matter. I think the idea of Hamas will be destroyed. I think the conventional wisdom will be Hamas committed suicide, Hezbollah is too smart for that. We hope the Iranians know not to engage in such direct provocations. I think Netanyahu will probably lose the next election. I think the Israelis will then reconstitute their government. And I think the UN and international organizations will document all the horrors that befell the Gazans. And it won't really matter that much. In the long term, support for Israel will decrease among young people in the United States. And this could have a long-term bearing on the funding for Israel, which might weaken the Iron Dome or weaken the Israeli military, and maybe embolden Hezbollah or Iran to attack. Those things are all interrelated. And then in two or three or five or 10 years, no one will look back at the Tom Friedman, don't fall for the trap articles and say, wow, that guy was wrong. It'll all simply be ignored, forgotten. The idea of Hamas will stop being potent, and the idea that you can't defeat an idea won't at all be discredited. People will keep saying it. It's very attractive, romantic, transcendent. The people who say it are people who work in the world of ideas and they want it to be true. They speak the language of language, whereas the world understands the language of might. And I understand all of this might not come to pass. I am no seer. I'm just interested to see where I'm wrong and where I'm right. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer, and I will talk to you Monday.